somebody else calls you an artist, you don't call yourself an artist. If you think of your work as art, that's terrific. But somebody else has to think of your work as art. And I think to do that, there's a couple different ways. I would say what I think is... This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, the upcoming printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Sherry Bunny. Sherry is a member of the Frames community, of course. You know her work from a recent photograph that was featured in the magazine. She's also the Artist of the Year from the Creole Center in Florida. She's had a Nikon scholarship. Her work has been featured in galleries all over the place. And her work, to my way of thinking, is tremendously interesting, not only for what we've seen on frames, the intentional camera movement that we're going to talk about in a second, but when you dig a little bit deeper and you look at her website and her Instagram platform, you realize here is a photographer of tremendous depth and range. And it's my real pleasure to bring her to your attention today. Sherry, good afternoon. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Scott. That was a wonderful introduction. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you with us. Tell me about this picture that's been featured on the Frames website. Intentional camera movement is really easy to do badly, and you have done it tremendously well. well tell me the story of this image. Sure. Yeah. So the, the image you're speaking of is Southern Sawgrass, and I've been doing intentional camera movement Actually, it's kind of funny. I feel like I started photography doing intentional camera movement. And this story probably resonates with most is because I could you know, really do good at taking a blurry picture. And so I, I've nailed it from the beginning. Um, so <laughs> coming back to it, actually understanding technique and how my camera works I came back to it. And a lot of times I, I felt like intentional camera movement was really an outlet to, to be purely creative. And in this instance, I got the new neutral density filter. I was at the school, had finished a class. I wanted to try it out. So I went, hooked it up to the camera, put the filter on and, and went out to Lake Strolling, which is right uh, behind the classroom that I teach out of. And I went back there and this uh, southern sawgrass was there and a nice, beautiful reflection on the lake. And I, I took about six pictures. I knew there was something special there and I didn't push it any further than that. And out of the six, you know, this one was was by far my favorite. Well, t tell me about the, the composition here, because the more I stare at it, you know, and now I see the water there and I, and I see the sawgrass and stuff. You know, do the old rules still apply of how you put together the image inside a frame? I think so. Uh, I, I think sometimes that gets lost because intentional camera movement can just seem like a long exposure technique that doesn't take a lot of uh, thought. But I think the most successful ones do. I think that thought to composition, I really feel um, in mind, I like to have something that grounds the image, even though you're blurring your subject matter. And sometimes you're blurring it beyond being able to really grasp what it is. It's more of a feeling or a, almost sometimes like a watercolor look. 
I like to have a little bit of reality in mind and I really like to keep it grounded. So things like, you know, having your focus land where you want it to, having the elements of composition there, something dark that grounds my colors uh, to the base of the picture, something that provides contrast. Those are all really important. Light is really important, of course, and understanding light when you're taking a long exposure picture is incredibly important. Do you spend an awful lot of time on post-production with an image like this? The fun part about intentional camera movement is you really don't have to. It is really about the technique. Now, I do have a series of pictures where I have um, called the texture of water and they're all intentional camera movement, but they do involve some post-processing in order. What I've done is take rain as kind of my subject in different scenes. And I really want to see the rain. Now that takes a little bit of manipulating when it's falling down. So, and that is really the only instance that I do a lot of post-production with the intentional camera movement. Cause I think it's, it's true beauty is in the movement itself is in that long exposure and the movement that the photographer brings to it. Well, the long exposure and the movement, certainly, and your comparison to watercolor, I think, is particularly apt. Uh, looking at this image, I'm looking at the yellows in the center. I'm looking at that smudge of pink or red or purple or whatever it is over on the right. Did you see all that when you set it up, or is that stuff that became apparent when you were working on it? You know, in honesty, what I saw was the beautiful uh, water creating the nice kind of rippled reflection in the background, the stalk showed itself through the first couple of images that I took. And I knew that that was going to be kind of, you know, not always putting your subject in the center is a great rule. But in this one, there was a lot of symmetry involved. So mm -hmm. I really liked having that, that one sawgrass come in. But those other hues, they just really showed themselves. You're not, they're not, those colors aren't really always there to the naked eye when you take the picture. And in long exposure, they reveal themselves. Talk to me just, just briefly before we move on about the technical aspects. How long was the exposure? And was this you know, just a nudge on a tripod? Or tell me, if I've never done this before, tell me how to take that picture. I think the best intentional camera movements, you don't want to go too long with the exposure. So I like to stay somewhere between you know, a fourth of a second, maybe two seconds long. There's a, There reaches a point with your subject that the blur is just blur for blur's sake. And, and I don't find those images as interesting. So having like a long, a long exposure, but not too long uh, to where you see the elements, you see details, you see separation between your foreground and your background. I think that's really important. In this instance, I think I was at a fourth of a second on this. Yes, with an aperture of 16. And I think the ISO was really, really low at 50. Oh, wow. Well, it, it is an evocative and I think um, tremendously successful image, one that I've enjoyed staring at, frankly, uh, for quite some time. But this image is not exactly what an awful lot of the rest of your work is. If somebody goes to SherryBunnyPhotography.com, uh, and I should spell it out, S-H-E-R-R-I-B-U-N-Y-E, Photography.com, the first thing that we are met with is an awful lot of black and white, an awful lot of travel, an awful lot of documentary work. Tell me about your other projects. T tell me how you got from, you know, age five to where you are now. <laughs> exactly. Well, the intentional camera movement is the beginning of it uh, for me. Uh, most of my work is inspired by my family road trips. 
my dad uh, had a horrible fear of flying, loved to drive. He was a truck driver by trade. And so everywhere we went in the country, my dad loved to go driving and travel. Uh, we went by car. So uh, transversing the United States by car with somebody who loves to wander is really the inspiration behind most of my work. Um, but the intentional camera movement on a trip that we did going to California and coming back, I had my camera and I shot out the window all the time. And my father went and had the film developed and brought it home and just was aghast that he spent all this money on all these blurry pictures, <laughs> <laughs> which I loved. I absolutely loved them, these landscapes that were kind of going by. And as you saw, you know, industrial areas, urban areas give way to prairies, give way to deserts. You know, it was all fascinating to me. And then Again, the, the road trips, that childlike wandering that I think was uh, so obvious and I felt it from my father, I grew up with. And then when I kind of rediscovered photography again, it was with, the, with that inspiration that I started taking pictures in my hometown at that time, which was Orlando. So I would, I would go up and down the interstate. I was in school at Creole School of Art. And my mentor there had told me, what you need to do is carry around your camera with you all the time. And just whenever you have time, take pictures. And so going up and down Interstate 4, which is uh, uh, this long interstate that runs east to west through Florida, I would get off at an exit and photograph when I had time going somewhere or coming back. I never really looked at those images. They were all kind of just me understanding the craft of photography. When I looked back on them a couple years later, I realized I'd really kind of developed a look. Like I, I there were reasons which I didn't quite understand fully at the time that I photographed some things and not others, that I stood one place and not another place. And now we all know, I mean, that's what makes a photograph somebody's photograph. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we all develop a, a voice or a style or, or a set of interest points, uh, you know, like focus points that call our attention. What were you taking pictures of? What, what was your early voice looking at? Yeah, there was a lot of architecture involved. There was a lot of juxtaposing communities against um, cities you know, kind of the uh, transition from neighborhoods to um, the city. I, I enjoyed doing that. Uh, there's not a ton of people in my pictures. I kind of very early thought that I could say more about the people without them being in the pictures, that these are kind of representative of different communities or geographical areas. And for me, it really had a lot to do with the roadway. One side of a roadway versus the other sometimes can make all the difference. And so I tried to stay within a mile or two of the interstate. And eventually I expanded that to go from one end of the interstate to the other, getting off at all of the exits and photographing. Tell me about the Route 66 project that you got the Nikon scholarship for. You didn't do the whole road. You did a particular section. Uh, why that section and what were you looking for? Yeah, so that was, um, God, I'm probably, I think her name was Mick Roberts. I uh, took the money and I put it towards a workshop. She was specific to doing this certain stretch of Route 66, which she had done workshops on 
uh, often. And I felt that that, again, was really in my interest of roadways, how they develop, how contemporary, what they look like now versus how we historically think of them. And of course, those areas that still have that little bit of nostalgia, that Americana, that's what I've been drawn to in almost all of my projects. When you talk about the documentary work is kind of this nostalgic Americana feel. Well, I want to come back to Route 66 in a moment because uh, I've had the good fortune to do some shooting there myself. But you hit one of my favorite themes there, and that is nostalgia. Do, do you think photographers have a particular way of seeing nostalgia? Because it calls to a lot of us. Yeah, I think so. I think pe- there are people, other photographers that are much more talented than I am at shooting people in a way that's very kind of timeless or reminiscent of a certain age. That's not, like you said, the lens that I'm looking at it from. I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at the change in this vernacular change from, you know, as we were moving to the industrial age and as we were just getting past that. And that's kind of my favorite time. If there's any relics from that, I like to either juxtapose them or I like to, you know, really show the detail and the beauty of what, what that time meant for the people who lived in it and the people who still live there. Yep. That, that juxtaposition or, you know, content contrast is always really, really rich, I think, for a photographer. You know, shooting on Route 66, one of the problems is that every photographer in the world has already been there. You go driving along and you think, yep, I recognize that. I've seen 18 photographs of that neon sign. Uh, and then you stand there a little dumbfounded thinking, what in the world am I going to say about it? But of course, the light's always different. The content around that sign's always different. I think you did some wonderful work there. Tell me about the Road A1A project, the road from Flagler Beach to St. Augustine. Yeah, so this is an interesting road, and I had really wanted to photograph it for six years before I actually decided to focus my attention onto it. I was teaching an advanced class at Cree all day and co-teaching it with the executive director, who is also a very talented documentary photographer, Peter Schreier. And we were taking a limited group of students, 10 students, and we were documenting St. Augustine as it turned 450 years old. And for anybody who's not familiar with St. Augustine, it is the oldest continually occupied area in the United States. Oh, I didn't know Uh, that. So- Yes, yeah, so it's the it's the oldest uh, city we have here. So it was turning 450. It was a huge deal. Our proximity to it gave us uh, the ability to uh, document it as it turned 450 years old. So it's about a two hour drive from where I was at at the time where I was living at the time. And every time I would go out there, I would get off of the interstate and take uh, kind of the more scenic route, which was A1A through Flagler Beach and then on to St. Augustine. So the whole time you're going to St. Augustine on this route, you have the Atlantic Ocean to your right. So it's quite a special drive. And from that time forward, I had been wanting to do it. And Originally, I I thought about kind of this coastal living and what that looks like. There's a lot of sprawl in Florida. Um, I think Flagler itself has kept a nice uh, nice handle on it, kind of with how high their buildings are. They're very, you know, like two or three stories is the max over there. They've done very well with it. But as you get closer to St. Augustine, you you do catch a little bit of sprawl there. 
But for the most part, this stretch, which is probably about 70 miles long, is quite beautiful. And as it changes, of course, you're seeing the changes in the people that that live there, too, from a little tourist town when you're in Flagler up into St. Augustine, one of the oldest cities in the United States. To be a documentary photographer, what does that mean for you? With this project in specific and some of the others as well, but I mean, versus a street photographer versus a landscape photographer, when you use the word documentary, what are you reaching for? Yeah, I'm reaching for recording what this place looks like at this moment in time. And to do that in a way that meets a couple of conditions for me, the first is always that it's visually interesting. Sometimes you hit that mark you know, better than others, but that it's visually interesting and others that it's, that it's showing the, the people, like I said, I don't have a lot of people in my pictures, but that it is representative of the people. I don't really, I'm not interested in the outliers, you know, areas that don't represent the community or the people who visit it. I'm interested in the things that people will look back on and remember, as I do with documentary photography. And and I think in a lot of ways, I equate it to music. Like when you hear a song, it takes you back to a moment in time. That would be the highest compliment somebody could give me in my images 20 years from now is that they saw it and it took them back to to a moment in time that they remembered. Speaking of not having an awful lot of people in the pictures, I want to segue to another one of your projects uh, that I found uh, personally compelling simply because I've been in some of those places. And that's your Streets of New Orleans project. Again, it's, it's on your website for people that are listening in. Talk to me, if you would, about just the very first shot in, in that project, the one that o- opens it up on your website. Oh, right. Like the, the uh, little alleyway? Yes. Is that the one? Yeah, this little alleyway uh, just in the French Quarter. It's beautiful. It has, um, like most of the area has a lot in the French Quarter, you know, it's business driven, but it still feels very communal. And in this one, we got up very early in the morning. I like to, when we're in New Orleans, which we try to go to at least once a year, Almost always, uh, well, last year we went with Photo Nola was there and tried to hit that. But uh, getting up early is great because it's one of the few times that you see the streets of New Orleans without people on. And we all know how crowded New Orleans can get. So this was a special picture to have this kind of beautiful light, beautiful alley that uh, you can see the lights from the businesses. Business over on the right is still on. It hasn't turned off yet. And the little lanterns are still on. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a special shot. I, I love that as an opening to it. Well, it, it is evocative. And you know, as so many shots like this do, when the people aren't in there, the people are uh, in an odd way implied. I mean, as, as a viewer, I tend to find myself falling into those kinds of photographs, imagining where the people would be. So it, for my way of, of viewing photographs, a really successful decision. Uh, another photograph that, that I'd love to hear the story of, uh, again, in the New Orleans project, I assume it's a French uh, Quarter corner somewhere in the rain. There's a bunch of folding chairs sort of assembled uh, in the middle of the street, and nobody's there. Um, what the, <laughs> what, what's going on with that shot? Yeah. So if I'm remembering this one, it's the one with the, like, there's uh, some type of throw blanket with a, like a fox or a dog of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, so this was last year. This was at the end of last year when we were there, again, getting up very early in the morning. This is on the weekend. So Jackson Square on the weekend becomes an art show, an art sale, uh, you know, a nice little festival to go to. And this particular day, it had rained overnight. It was still a little misty and foggy in the morning. Maybe a little bit of drizzle, but not a lot. But the streets were still really wet. And this person must know how crowded it gets. It must be a vendor who comes there a lot. I believe she was a tarot card reader. And I guess she had her spot that she wanted. She knew this was her spot. There wasn't anything else around her set up at the time. (laughs) And she set it up. And for me, you know, coming across it and lining it up with this building that kind of sprawls out diagonally from each side was just luck, sheer luck. Well, it, it's it's a remarkable photograph. A lot of your work is black and white and a lot of your work is color. Is this just what you're feeling at the time or do you have a specific sort of philosophy as to how you're going to construct certain projects? Definitely. So uh, the first documentary project that I did was The Exits Less Travel, and that is that uh, Florida I-4 work uh, that we talked about at the beginning. And for that work, I was I was in color. Color was very important to me. It was contemporary. I, I kind of was different within my peer group. Everybody was doing black and white. So I, that probably made me want to do color even more. It was, it was definitely a challenge, but as my work evolved, I kept trying to think, am I a black and white photographer? Am I a color photographer? And then eventually I just thought I need to, I need to meet my photos wherever they're at. If it's a timelessness, if it's that Americana, if I'm trying to show something in a certain scope, I need to do whatever is going to make that the strongest. And so that's, that's how I choose my black and white versus color. I like that notion of meeting your photograph where it's at. So do you see yourself more as recorder or interpreter or both? Probably recorder more only because I get the, I I like to try to be the voice kind of cumulatively, but through the image itself. I think that every photographer the choices that they make making that photo gives it their voice. But after they make it, the voice then belongs to the viewer. Oh, I like that. Um, you have been teaching photography for quite some time. Can photography, can, can a voice be taught? I mean, you can certainly teach the technical part, but can you teach art? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I think you can te- you can teach the tools. I think each person has to decide if they can use those tools to make art or not. And my my mentor, you know, I, somebody asked my uh, Rick Lang was my mentor. He was the um, director of photography when I was a student, fellowship student at Creole Day, and he had a tremendous impact on my work. And he would say that somebody else calls you an artist. You don't call yourself an artist. If you think of your work as art, that's terrific. But somebody else has to think of your work as art. And I think to do that, there's a couple different ways. I would say what I think is the most successful for me is kind of working independently of a lot of feedback 
if I get a lot of feedback, I become really, my vision becomes compromised. It's almost, you know, designed by committee and that's never successful. I think um, for me, it helps to just do my work, do what works for me. And if it resonates with under other people, that's terrific. But at the end of the day, if my work keeps elevating, then I'm happy with it. And I go into art thinking that and, and learning the tools, having an instructor to teach me the tools. And, and I will say, I think it's more important than ever in photography for lifelong learning. You can never learn too much in photography. So I continue to take workshops. I continue to take classes. I continue to further my craft, even while I'm teaching other people. Boy, I want to second that enthusiastically. I, th- I think the technology is changing, so we have that need for learning. But our entire world is changing around us more quickly these days than I think uh, we wish it was. And to have that ability to be in a community of learners is always, I think, going to propel us maybe not farther than we would have gone otherwise, but it'll it'll get us there faster. And then uh, we can do more as well. Speaking of teaching, your, your teaching life has changed recently. You were a senior instructor at Crealde, and now you've, tell me you've moved to guest instructor. Tell me what's going on there. Yeah, so when we came into the uh, out of winter and into the spring, as as we all went have been going through with the COVID nineteen and and the social distancing, uh, like a lot of businesses and a lot of uh, colleges and universities and art schools, what have you, there was a transition happening. Uh, our school. We didn't really have the ability to do uh, online. We weren't we weren't quite set up that way. So we had we took some downtime. During that downtime, I really reevaluated where I was. I love teaching. I I would say teaching is this my second love outside of photography. I enjoy it so much. However, I realized that there was just a lot more work that I wanted to do than there was time in a day for. And, and, and when I, when we had the at home orders and we had the social distancing, there were some things I could continue to do, which was my photography. And as I continued to do my photography with all of those guidelines, I realized that I, I did want to dedicate as much time as possible. I think for a lot of people, this has all been a reality check. And uh, no different with me. It was a reality check. And I just decided that uh, my photography won out and and not enough time in the day. I just had to let something go. So guest instructor gives me the ability to still teach, still do classes and workshops there. I just will not every semester be offering. So what are the things that you're focusing on during the, the virus time here? I've done some COVID work, but I didn't. There were so many photographers out there. And I heard this really, you know, a documentary photographer, I think it was Harry Hornstein, that recently that said, you know, photograph what nobody else is photographing. And of course, there were so many people out there doing the signs and the masks and the hospitals. uh, and, And that's great because that story needs to be told. And so that's been documented really well. Uh, one of the things that I, I played around with what, that I that is not anywhere in the work that, that you've seen or that I've done before is doing diptychs. And I yeah, I did some with the COVID signs in businesses. You know, there's been some really interesting ones, handmade signs, type signs, funny signs. 
And I did that, but showing the building and then putting two buildings that were not alike, but visually looked interesting together, together in the diptych. So the sign, although there is not any way like the subject of the picture, it's more these two empty spaces with these two buildings during this time that are joined, that are joined together only in my mind, but now in print. (laughs) And will these be on your website soon or? They will, they will. Um, I've, so my process with these have been, you know, printing them small, cutting them up, laying them out, living with them for a period of time, mix and matching them, and then seeing how creative I want to get with the blending models. So they're non-traditional diptychs. And I, I'm not quite finished with that yet, but I, I can't wait to get those out for people to see. Well, I, I for one, am looking forward uh, to seeing those. Uh Sherry, I'm really glad that you took Southern Sawgrass, that you did that intentional camera movement shot because it was a wonderful way to get introduced to your work. And then delving into the website and seeing all the documentary, all the travel stuff uh, has been a, a learning experience and a pleasurable one for me. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I can imagine you would like to hear more about what we are currently working on. Later this year, we will be launching a quarterly printed photography magazine. It will be a beautifully designed, inspiring publication. I personally truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper, hence the idea of frames. To find out more about frames and to join more than 14,000 photography enthusiasts who enjoy our weekly newsletter, go ahead and visit frames.photography. I would love to have you in our community. Thanks so much.